If you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Colossians. And we will be in a short time reading verses 21 through 23 of the first chapter. I was talking to someone recently about their conversion. Um, we, we sometimes say it's a, a testimony. What we mean by that is that each one of us has our own sort of individual story about how God has worked in our lives to bring us from where we were to where we are. We call that a testimony, and it is individual to all of us. No one path is the same. For some, it is an incredibly miraculous event. It, it looks a lot like Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road, that there is a presence felt, that there is light. I know I have uh, a professor who, who talks about his conversion, that he sat as a uh, just an unrepentant sinner in the uh, never knowing the things of God um, as a young man, probably about the age of 18, and he confessed his sins to this youth pastor, and he said, it was a, a miracle. There was a weight that was upon me, literal, like, physical weight that was just lifted in an instant. I know of other people who have had miraculous events in their lives and have actually refused to share that because they thought, the miraculous event that has happened to me should not make anyone else feel as though their conversion is, is less, that the same miracle has happened to us all. And so uh, they refuse to talk about the way in which God saved them because it was so miraculous and the event that other people might misinterpret their own as being less than miraculous. God has worked in some in an instant. And he shows himself in beauty and power, and they are changed in an instant. And then in others, God slowly works in them, showing his perseverance, showing his long-suffering with them to lead them to the place where they would come to know their Lord as Savior. We have these stories because it shows how God works in each one of our lives. And today, I plan to tell you what your story is, not in its specifics, but in its broad strokes, what God has done in your life. If you are a Christian, how he has reconciled you. And to understand that, we turn then to the book of Colossians, and we look at verses 21 through 23 of the first chapter. Paul writes, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." And God bless this reading of his word. I tend to be kind of a picky guy. I have things that people say and do that just drive me nuts. My children know this all too well. I'm probably too picky with them. They seem to have this sort of reverse magnet on their plates so that when food falls from their face, it hovers over their plate and then goes three feet to the right and drops on the floor. It's amazing power that they have, and it drives me crazy. Um, so... I tend to be picky about things, and, and not everything for the most part. I would like to think that I'm a pretty laid-back guy, but there's some things that really drive me nuts, and especially some theological things that really drive me nuts. And one of those things is when people say, quite often I hear people say this, that if you personally were the only person to walk on the face of the earth, if you were the only person to exist, Jesus Christ still would have died for you. I despise it. It makes my 
toes curl, and these shoes are kind of tight, so that hurts all the more. I really despise that. Now, there's good to it. I know what is meant by that. What is meant is to emphasize as much as possible how much Christ has loved you and how much he cares for you and how much he wants you to be good so that even if all the other accolades were gone and you were the only person around, that Christ still would have died for you. That is a good sentiment. Unfortunately, it is wrapped in something that Christians should not ever swallow. First, there is the general problem of highlighting Christ's love by a hypothetical that's not true, as though as though the gospel isn't enough demonstration of God's love that we need to make up some sort of hypothetical world in which Christ's love is magnified for you. Listen, you cannot magnify Christ's love any more than it is in what has been done and said. We don't need hypotheticals for that. The second problem is this. Man, that leads to rampant individualism. The idea that God loved you and saved you even if no one else was present, makes you the forefront. Listen, if that were true, if you were the only person around, let me ask you a question. If Christ saved you, why do you need us? Why do you need the person who's sitting to your right or to your left? Why do we need the church? You wonder why people feel as though the church is completely superfluous to the plan of God. It's because of sentiments like that. That Christ has not cared about redeeming a people for himself, but what Christ cared about was redeeming you. So we focus so much on the individual, we lose track of the corporate. But Christ has redeemed the people. And I'm here to tell you, the fact that Christ has done amazing work vastly outside of you actually highlights more the love that Christ has for you. Listen, in those previous verses that we read two weeks in a row, That he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So then everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself not just you, all things, all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. The fact that Christ's work was cosmic. He reconciled all things, rulers, thrones, and dominions, powers. He reconciled creation. He reconciled galaxies and, and stars and black holes. He reconciles everything to himself. And even in the midst of that, in the midst of all of the work that was laid before Christ in reconciling and making right everything that has gone wrong, Still, he considered you while he saved you. That highlights the love of Christ. That magnifies the love of Christ for you personally, and it magnifies the work of Christ in redeeming and reconciling all things. So, it's not for nothing that Paul turns from talking about this cosmic reconciliation, that he is making all things new, to look at the Colossians and say, and you, and you were reconciled by his blood. This is indeed good news. This is why we call it good news. Gospel just means good news, and there's nothing special to it. It's just that Paul thinks that this is really like good news, so it should be called the good news. There is no good news that compares to this good news, but we we need to emphasize that there's, there's bad news first. 
There's just no way around that. So if you went back a couple of centuries, if you went back to the time of the Puritans, and I, I'm not making this analogy because sometimes in especially sort of Reformed Christian circles, we can say the Puritans and we can say it as though heaven has come and faded from the earth. That is not the case. This is, I'm not referring to this because this is the way that things should be, but it's simply a difference. When you went back to those times, when they talked about the love of God, that was shocking to a great many people. And that was shocking to a great many people because they saw the judgment and the wrath of God everywhere they looked. Because everywhere they looked, there was death. The infant mortality rate was off the charts. If, if you lived in a house, you saw people die in that house. We don't witness death anymore. How many people in here have actually watched someone die? It would be few. It would be few. But that was a commonplace thing for them. They saw people die. They, they saw weather and nature fight against them at every turn. They, they didn't understand how germs worked, and so they had in unknown reasons for why they would suffer and die. They knew that there was simply the plague. They knew that there was simply the fever. They knew that there was simply the pox. They didn't know what caused it or how it got spread or where it was going to hit next. The wrath of God was everywhere, and so when you preach good news to them, when you preach that Christ loved them, it was hard for them to even buy that. But that is not where we are. Death is hidden in nursing homes and it's hidden in hospitals. It's hidden away from us. It is the stuff of television. And by putting it on television, by having murder mysteries and detective shows, we immediately make it something that's there, but it's not ever here. All the more reason than we when we go out to witness to the good news, it is not enough simply to talk about how God loves people because I'm telling you what, in America, that is the given. If there is a God, he is for us and not against us and he loves us oh so much. What people need to know is that there's actually bad news before we can get to the good news. And indeed, there was bad news for the Colossians. Paul lists three things that provide bad news for them. And this was bad news for you as well. Do not think that these words that were written to the Colossians could not very well be written to you. If Paul had heard of your faith and he had written this to our congregation, if he had written this to the churches of the Bay Area Baptist Association or just simply the middle of Michigan, he would have written the same things. You were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. So let's talk about what those three things are. First, you were alienated from God. You were alienated. Now, alienated is easy enough term. I think that when we hear that, we simply think that we were separated from God. And we think back to the curse of Genesis that we were with God in the garden and Adam and Eve, and then they had fallen and they were separated. They were thrust out of the garden. And an angel was put on the entrance to the garden that would not allow them back in. Okay? And that even in the Holy of Holies, there was a, a presence of God that was there that we were not allowed into, right? So the high priest was allowed to enter one time a year after making purifications, but normal folk, normal blokes like you and I, couldn't get anywhere close to it. One, because we're not Jewish, and two, because we weren't clean. So we weren't allowed anywhere close to God. There was a, a separation that we had before God. And it's easy enough to read this verse as though the primary thing that it's talking about when it speaks of alienation is the fact that we are separated from God. But I think that it means much more than just the fact that we are separated from God. This word is only used a handful of time. This word alienated is only used a, word a handful of time throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. One of those times comes in a passage in Joshua. 
I'm going to read several of these. You don't need necessarily to flip there. In Joshua 22, there are two and a half tribes that exist on the eastern side of the Jordan River. There's the half tribe of Manasseh, there is the tribe of Reuben, and the tribe of Gad. And they exist on the the east side because they said, we would like this land and not the land on the west side of the Jordan. So God said, I will allow you to have it, but you have to cross the Jordan and you have to fight for your brothers. And so they go across the Jordan and they fight for their brothers. And then they retreat after everything's said and done. You can tell this is at the end of the book of Joshua. They're retreating back to their lands. And as they do so, they build an altar. And the other tribes look at that and they say, that's not good. And so they gather an army and they are about to go and fight their brothers. And when they hear about it, they say, what are you guys doing? They say, listen, we know you built an altar. We can see it, Bob. It's right there. You can't hide the fact that you built an altar. We know you built an altar. You're going to offer worship to foreign gods. You can't offer sacrifices there. And they say, we know we can't offer sacrifices there. But this is where we pick up in verses 21 through 25. The Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered the leaders of the Israelite clans, The Lord is the God of gods. The Lord is the God of gods. He knows, and may Israel also know, do not spare us today. If it was in rebellion or treachery against the Lord that we have built for ourselves an altar to turn away from him, may the Lord himself hold us accountable if we intended to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings on it or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it. So they say, that wasn't its intention. We built an altar, but we didn't do it to to offer sacrifices. Why? We actually did this from a specific concern that in the future, your descendants might say to our descendants, what relationship do you have with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and you, the descendants of Reuben and Gad. You have no share in the Lord. They're worried that they're going to look at that Jordan River and say, you're on the far side. You are separated from us. You are alienated from us. And therefore, because you're alienated, you have no share with us. You do not get to come and worship the Lord God with us. You are excluded from being with us. So your descendants may cause our descendants to stop fearing the Lord. They said, you are going to look at this separation. So we built an altar to remind you that we too are the members of God's kingdom. We built an altar that looks a lot like the altar that you offer at so that you will remember that we are connected to you, that we belong to you, so that we wouldn't be alienated from you. In Jeremiah 19, 3 through 4, say, Jeremiah, hear the word of the Lord, the king of of Judah and residents of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. I'm going to bring such disaster on this place that everyone who hears about it will shudder because they have abandoned me and made this a foreign place. They have burned incense to it, um, incense in it to other gods that they, their fathers, and the kings of Judah have never known. They have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have offered to foreign gods. They offered it to people who were alienated. They have allowed that which was alien to come into the presence of God. And he says, I'm going to burn the place down because of it. Even David in Psalm 69, this great psalm about the, the, penal, the, the pain that he is going through, he uses this image of, of grief drowning him in it. We read, 
In verse 7, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. He talks about the fact that they are lying in wait for him. They are lying in wait so that they can reproach him, so that they can destroy not only his soul, but his body as well. You see, this alienation is not just an indifferent separation as though God was over there and you were over here and you were simply separated from him. It has everything to do with being foreign to God and being foreign to the people of God. So what happens when the Israelites came into Canaan and there were foreign peoples there? What did God tell them to do? You kill them all. They are at enmity with my people. They are at enmity with me. When David said, I am an alien to my brothers, did he simply mean that they were indifferent to him? No, he meant that they rebuked him as an outsider. This is exactly why laws like Leviticus 19.33 exist. When a foreigner lives in your land, you must not oppress him. You must regard the foreigner who lives in your land as a native born among you. You are not to love him as your you are to love him as yourself, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. He says that because the typical response is, You're a foreigner, therefore we will punish you and drive you out. So when Paul says you were foreigners to God, he doesn't just mean that you were separated from him. He means you were objects of God's wrath. You were against him. You stood on the opposite side of him. If you want to read an interesting parallel to this and how it happens in Roman society, Acts 22, 22 through 29, they're about to beat Paul. They literally say they're going to stretch him out and they're going to whip the truth out of him. That's what they say. And so they stretch him out and they're about ready to whip him. And he says, "Uh, is this normal to do to a Roman citizen? And all of a sudden they stop and they turn to the commander and they say, did you know he was a Roman citizen? The commander says, I I bought my citizenship. Paul's clearly not a wealthy man. He says, I bought my citizenship for a great deal of money. And Paul says, well, I was born into it. And immediately it's, they all sort of step back and put their hands up. Listen, if you were in Rome, you could beat the truth out of somebody. You could whip them and torture them until they gave you the information they wanted to, but you were not allowed to touch a Roman citizen. The foreigners, do whatever you want to them. Those who are inside, you are not allowed to touch. So when Paul says you are alienated from God, you are alienated, he doesn't just mean you were separated. He means you were outside of his gracious covenant. You were alienated from him. Secondly, you are enemies of God. The first leads directly into the second, your enemies of God. When he says you are hostile in mind, we tend to think of this in terms of our conscience, that your attitude toward God, when you think of him, you hate him. The problem is that most people aren't actually like that. There are few out there. There are some who know of God. They've been in church and they hate it and they rebel against it so much they would say, yes, of course, I know that I'm at enmity with God and I I fight against him. And they are conscious of their willing sin before him. But the vast majority of people are not in that position. I don't think the vast majority of people think in their own conscience that they fight against him. Well, that's not actually what Paul means anyway. When he says hostile in mind, the mind was not simply a conscious area of choice, but it was more how they oriented themselves in the world. It was their mindset to the world that the way that they were by nature, the things that they they did, they were always at enmity with God. A really good way to, to show this is to go back to Romans 7. 
In Romans 7, Paul is talking about the law. And about the law, he has said a number of very difficult things for Jews to hear that the law does not save, the law is insignificant and insufficient for salvation. And then he comes back and he's got to then talk about the law. And he's, he's got to answer questions about, well, did God give us that which is bad? Did God give us something that is, is horrible and wretched? And so in verse 7 of chapter 7, he says this, What should we say then? Is the law sin? Because he said the law brings sin. So is the law itself sinful? Did God give us something that was sinful? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet had the law not said, you shall not covet. That is, God's commandment was good and right and holy, as we will read in just a second. It was good that God gave the law. But what Paul is saying is his sin inside of him, when it hears the law come down, says, yeah, that's something I would like to not follow. His immediate response isn't, man, I should really, from the flesh, he might think mentally, I need to not covet. But what sin in him does is immediately say, let's go covet. So it was awakened in him. The fact that God commanded it was the very thing that awakened it in Paul. It didn't cause the sin. The sin was always there, but it gave it an area to do further disobedience to God. God commands and you disobey. God speaks, you should do this, and you immediately fight against it. And even the things that you do, which are good and noble and holy, you do for reasons that are wrong, for your own reasons, not to please God and not because God has commanded them of you. Paul goes on to say, And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law the sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The commandment was meant for life, resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law then is holy and the commandment is holy and just, and good. The law was fine in and of itself. But sin in Paul, that mindset in Paul, that as soon as the commandment came to him, in him, sin sprung up. And it said, yes, we can disobey again. He says, that is what you were like. You were hostile in your mind. That The very set of how you viewed the world, of how you viewed God, was hostile. So that when God speaks to you, you immediately reject it. Maybe not mentally, but in your life, as sin takes an opportunity, you fight against it. You are enemies. Thirdly, you are evil doers. Some translations make evil doers the result or the cause of being hostile in mind. They will say you are hostile in mind because you did evil deeds. It's not exactly what is meant here. What is meant is that the doing of evil deeds and the hostility of your mind, the mindset that you have toward God, they are clearly closely related to one another. One is not the cause of another. You don't think poorly about God. You're not set as enmity against God because you do evil deeds. But you also don't just do evil deeds because you're at enmity with God. The two feed off of one another. Your mind is set against God, so you do evil things. Those evil things entrench your mindset all the more so that you're more likely to do evil things, which entrenches you all the more. We see this again in Romans 1, 22 through 24. Claiming to be wise, they became 
fools. So that it's a mindset issue. They thought that they knew better than God. And so they set up creatures. They set up animals. They set up human images in order to be their gods. They thought that they were being wise, standing against God, but they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the craving of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded amongst themselves. So their evil mindset led them to doing evil things. In verse 26, this is why God delivered them over to degrading passions. So again, the mindset leads to sin. Then in verse 32, we read this. Although they know full well that God's just sentence, those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but applaud others who practice them. What's going on there? It is the fact that they've done these things so much, their minds are continually depraved. So not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who do. It is a cycle downward, all the time circling downward. You think about sin, you do sin, it makes you think about sin more, and all the more you are fighting against God. You are alienated, you are enemies, and you are evil doers. It should be said that if we're actually going to use this sort of evangelism, if you've got to preach the bad news to people, I'm going to tell you, in my experience, it's very difficult to convince somebody that they're bad. I mean, frankly, usually the bar is just set like so low. So if you, if you talk to people, they will compare themselves to Hitler and murderers. It's like the first thing out of their mouth. Like, I'm not so bad. I would like somebody to be honest once and just set the bar a little bit lower. Like, I only murdered two people and one of them really deserved it, so I'm okay. Like that, I can respect that. You are now setting the bar impressively low. That's good. But simply saying I didn't murder somebody, is okay. Like, that's a really bad standard to have. And so it's very, very difficult to convince people that they're actually bad. Because frankly, what we do is we kind of lose track of who Paul's talking to here. Whom is he speaking to? He's not speaking to lost people. So when he says you were these things, I'm sure that they give accordance to them. They say, yes, Paul, I I hear you. I, I see now that I was like that. I don't, I don't believe that they would have confessed that beforehand. They would have said, how, how am I alienated? God is everywhere. Especially the Greeks, he would have said, we've got gods in every corner. I think that God is in nature. We live in Michigan. It's beautiful. God is all over in nature, man. I worship God by going to Houghton Lake and boating. Which you can do, right? Let's be very clear about that. We can do that. But that isn't salvific. I'm not alienated from God. God is all around me. I'm not hostile in mind to God. I don't have a mindset against God. I don't mind God. God's good enough, I suppose. How are you going to convince people of that? You do evil deeds. Again, I I haven't murdered anybody this week, so I'm okay. How are you going to tell people that they are so far away from God? How are you going to convince them about where they are? You do that, one, by relying on the Holy Spirit to convict them, but two, by presenting them with Jesus. He said he has now reconciled you were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and he is now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death. Why body of flesh? That's really weird. Like, why, why not just say in his body? You flip over to chapter 2. In verse 9, you read, For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
that bodily simply means that he became human. That, that the Son of God, the creator of the cosmos, the, the one who has not only created all things, but holds it together by the power of his word in the palm of his hand, becomes flesh. He becomes human body. He becomes fully man. But it is not just a body. It is a body of flesh. He comes in the weakness of human beings. Flesh is almost universally a bad term in Paul. Flesh is where sin resides. And in the body of his flesh, he takes on all of our sin and so therefore reconciles us all by his death. He does this for the glory of God his Father by his own goodwill. You want to convince people you want to convince people that they don't love enough? You point to Christ. Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. He, he didn't die for people who were good. There is no one who is any closer to God in this world. You are either a Christian or you are separated from God and you are ungodly. Sometimes we think that people sort of sneak in the back door because they're pretty good already. Listen, they could be the hardened drug cartel builder, I'm losing the words there, of, of just the epitome of evil and the Spirit of God can move them in an instant and they can be the nicest suburban housewife that you'd ever meet and she is hardened to anything that is godly. Don't let outward appearances fool you. Christ says, you would expect that God would help those who help themselves, that he would do good things for those who honestly seek after God. But Paul says, no, for while we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. If you really, really loved them and you thought that they really, really deserved it, you might dare to die for them. You might plan it out. He's not talking about instantaneous like decision-making if you're a firefighter. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you will plan and give yourself up for somebody. You might do it if you really loved them, if you really thought them good. He says, but that's not how Christ viewed you. He didn't look at you and say, you're really good. I'm happy to die for you. He said, you are wicked and evil and alienated and hostile in mind, and I am willing to die for you. That is love. But God proves his own love. For in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You think you love? You have no idea what love is. You think that you're humble. You're not prideful. Jesus Christ, who exists in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You think you're humble? He is the creator of the whole universe. And he became a worm for you, a slave, one who is not just embarrassed in death, but took on the most embarrassing form of death. He humbled himself vastly beyond what you could ever do. You think that you're not prideful? Every moment that you live, you are prideful. You know nothing of humility. And even as that speaks of obedience, you think that you do the things that God has called you to do. Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting in bringing many sons that glory 
in many sons to glory that Jesus, for whom and through whom all things exist, the very God of gods, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. The very God of gods who came to this earth was made perfect by suffering. He completed the full course of what God gave him by suffering death. That is obedience. You think that you are obedient to God? You want to convict people of their sin? You don't tell them that they're sinful. You show them how good Christ is. He is indeed good to us. They were, you were, alienated and evil and doing evil. Or, excuse me, alienated enemies and doing evil. But Christ... 2.1, has made you near. You notice I didn't say holy, I said near. Sometimes when we read the word holy, the first thing that pops into our heads is the idea of a moral uprightness. That to be holy means that we, we do good things. We don't swear, don't watch dirty things, we think clean thoughts. We do the things that we're supposed to do all the time. Holiness is not just that. When he says, I have made you holy, we need to remember that there are several times when he tells us why we are to be holy. First Peter 1, 13 through 16 says this, <clears throat> Therefore, get your minds ready for action, being self-disciplined, And set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Notice what he says there. Why are they to be holy? Because God is holy. And he he compares them as though they're children. You are to be holy because I have called you to myself. You are no longer alienated. You are no longer them, but you are mine. I am your God. You are holy because I have brought you near to me. At the cross of Christ, I have reconciled you to me. And now because you are mine, you are to be holy. The idea is you are to be what God has already said you are. If he has called you holy, if he has called you saints, if he has called you children, then you ought to be like that. So when he says he made you holy, it doesn't just mean that he makes you morally upright. It means that you are no longer out there. He has cured your alienation by bringing you near. Peter is quoting a passage from Leviticus. Leviticus 11, 44 through 45. For I am the Lord your God, so you must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. This this passage, by the way, comes after all of the weird and goofy food laws. I love pork, you love pork, everybody loves pork. Why would God keep such good from his people? It's a good question, frankly. If you've ever had Pork, you know that's a really good question. So that's a really good question. Why would he keep such good things from his people? And this is the answer. He says, because you are not to be like everybody else. You are mine. And you are to be distinct from everybody else. And it might seem odd, and it might seem arbitrary, 
But this is going to set you apart. You are going to manifest that you are different from everybody. Why? Because you are mine. He goes on to say, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. So you must be holy, for I am holy. I have brought you near to me, so you have to be like I am. You have to be different from everybody else. And so when he says that Christ reconciled you to present you holy, that is means he has brought you near to God. Jesus Christ has gone over the gulf that has separated you from God and he has brought God near to you and you near to God. Two, Christ has made you servants. And again, that doesn't look like exactly what we read. You are blameless. You're spotless. It's very easy to take this in terms of a judicial setting so that you stand in front of the judge and he says, you are blameless. You have no blame before you. And he knocks on the gavel and you go off scot-free. But Paul has a word for that that he uses all the time. And it's justification, that God has justified you. That idea is that you are in a courtroom setting and he looks at you and the accuser of the brethren stands before you and he says, they are guilty because they have done these things. And he reads off the list of everything that you've done that you are guilty of. And God says, nope, covered in Christ, justified innocent, righteous before me. That is not this. This sounds a lot more like Leviticus again, 22, 17 through 20. The Lord spoke to Moses, Aaron, speak to Aaron, his sons and all the Israelites and tell them, any man of the house of Israel or the foreign residents in Israel who presents his offering, whether they present freewill gifts or payment of vows to the Lord as burnt offerings, must present an unblemished male from the cattle, sheep, or goats in order for you to be accepted. You are not to present anything that has a defect because it will not be approved on your behalf. When a man presents a fellowship sacrifice to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or flock, it has to be an unblemished and acceptable. There must be no defect in it. That sheep with the lazy eye, no good. Can't do it says, you give to me the best. It cannot have a defect or a blemish on it. What is he saying here? That Christ has cleansed you of your blemishes. That he is presenting you before God unblemished. That you might be a sacrifice to him. In Ephesians 5.2, Paul instructs the Ephesians to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I think that a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God is not just what Christ has done, but what we are to be. We are to be a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Of course, there's always Romans 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, after he has gone through 11 chapters of the work of Christ and the redemption of a whole world, he says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You were evil in mind, hostile in mind. Your mind was shaped and formed by sin and you stood against God. And what has Christ done? He has made you blameless that you might serve God. He has taken you from having a disposition towards God of enmity and made you willing to lay down your life for him. 
He has reconciled you. Finally, Christ has made you faultless. Faultless. It says, and above reproach. There's a song by a band. I don't know if we call them a band. There's two guys, so they're a band, I suppose. It's not a single guy. Named Shane and Shane. The first one's named Shane, the second one's named Shane. Um, They didn't spend a lot of time on their name, uh, but nevertheless. They sing a song called Embracing Accusation, um, which I love. Um, It's actually sung directly before um, their song, their um, version of Before the Throne of God. And this is part of the lyrics of that song. Before the throne of God above, um, sorry, that's the other song, sorry. Could the father of lies be telling the truth of God to me tonight? Father of lies being Satan. If the penalty of sin is death, then death is mine. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. So Satan comes to you and Satan accuses you before God. And that accusation is, you are guilty. You are guilty. You are stained, and you are sinful, and you deserve condemnation. And he says, he, he might be the father of lies, but I don't know what's wrong with that. That is exactly what the Bible upholds. He is the accuser of the brethren, and he's right. Each and every one of you are angry at God and hostile in mind and you were separated from him, separated out from the covenants and the promises given to Abraham. You are wasting away in this world and God does not need to do anything to save you. You are under his wrath and you deserve it. Well, they go on and they say, the devil's singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray. True. Singing the verse first, the first verse so conveniently over me, he's forgotten the refrain. Christ saves. They actually say Jesus saves, but whatever. Artistic license. Christ saves you. So yes, you are cursed and you're gone astray, but Jesus has redeemed you. You see, he will always stop at simply convicting you that you are wrong and you are guilty and you are stained before God, but Christ presents you faultless before the throne. That no more is there anybody who can bring an accusation against you. I'm reminded at the moment of Romans 8, which we read in Sunday school this morning. Verse 31. What can we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Here's the point. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is going to actually stand before God and accuse you? Who is going to stand before God and say, you have done evil? Who is it? Paul wants to know. Because it's God who justifies. It's God who has declared you innocent. Who is going to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. There is no more guilt, 
church. There is no more guilt upon you because Christ has died for you and he was raised again and he intercedes for you now. You are blameless before the throne of God. Paul will go on though. This great reconciliation that has happened under the providence of God will always stand. He knows those whom he has redeemed. He knows those that he has called as children. We uphold this. We say this is the perseverance of the saints that you once saved, you will always be saved. If God has worked in your life, that work will never be undone. There's all kinds of metaphors that we use that don't go backwards. Christ says, I hold them in my hand and no one can take them out. I mean, we even use language of new creation. Once a caterpillar comes out of the chrysalis, it doesn't become a, a caterpillar again. It's a butterfly. It's now different than what it was. Once an acorn becomes an oak, it doesn't become an acorn again. It goes one direction. Once you have been born again and you have become a new creation in Christ, there is no going back. You do not lose salvation. We uphold that. We say that and we will speak it from the top to the bottom of everything that we are. God is sovereign over this and he will not let you fail in that. Yet, yet, from the human perspective, we don't know. If you were somehow able to come up to God's throne room and you could see the names that were written in the book, you would know that those are the people who will persevere always. But from our standpoint, temporally limited, visually limited, we don't see everything, we don't know everything. Paul then turns around and gives them this very stern warning. All of this is true of you if, if, Humanly, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope. Yes, you are saved forever according to God's providence and his will in heaven. But as it works out on earth, you need to be warned that the perseverance of the saints, the fact that God will keep them until the end, says nothing about you being one of them. It does not mean that you are one of them. So Paul warns them, and he says, you need to continue steadfast in the faith. You need to continue steadfast to hold on to the things that you have been taught, to keep the faith that has been handed down to you. Jesus himself gives a parable that sounds much like this in the Sermon on the Mount. And I will leave you with this warning. The great Salvation that has come to you. Jesus then says this about it. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock we would add stable and steadfast. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Friends, Christ has offered you an amazing salvation. He has taken you who were 
hostile in mind, who are alienated from God and who did evil deeds, and he has given you new life. He has made you a new creation in him. Hold on to it. Lest your fall be great. Let us pray. Father God, you are good to us. And we know, Father, that those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, we know those who have been elect in your kingdom, Father, you will keep them always. We pray that that keeping, Father, for those of us who have been called, you continue to keep us steadfast, secured in the hope of the gospel, that we will never turn to the right or to the left, but we will hold on to it with all that we have. We pray, Father, for those who are here, that to the name and to the work and the cross of Jesus Christ, they would cling with all that they have, that they might be found holy and blameless and above reproach before you. For you, Father, are awesome and mighty in power. You are full of wrath and you are strong to deliver us from that wrath. And you have provided your son for us to run and hide in the blood of his cross. And so we pray, Father, that we would be the kind of people who are in our conversions, holding on tightly to you, being holy and above reproach in all things that we do. And that that is a message because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of what it means to us, of the cosmic reconciliation that Christ has done, that we might be able to take that to a lost world world who does not know you, that you might save some. We pray for this, for the good of those who have not heard. We pray about this, that your spirit might work in the world. We pray for the church, that the fullness of number might be added to it. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, his work that has sealed these things for us. We pray ultimately, Father, for your glory. Amen.